Hello and welcome to Natural Health with CNM, the College of Naturopathic Medicine. I'm your host, Michelle Sanchez. In today's episode, I'm joined by naturopath and family nutrition expert, Lucinda Miller, and we're delving into childhood nutrition, exploring specific nutritional needs across age groups. Lucinda discusses the nutritional deficiencies commonly found in children and the challenges parents face when it comes to getting healthy food into their kids. She provides practical tips for instilling healthy eating habits in children and advice on how to prepare a well-balanced, nourishing diet, addressing picky eaters and food sensitivities. We also touch on neurodivergence in children, highlighting the role of nutrition and gut health for these children. Lucinda Miller is the clinical lead of NatureDoc and runs a team of UK-wide nutritional therapists specialising in family nutrition, as well as running an online nature doc shop. She's been practising as a naturopath for over 25 years and is also a qualified functional medicine practitioner. Lucinda is also the author of the best-selling cookbooks, The Good Stuff and I Can't Believe It's Baby Food, and also runs online courses on nutrition for autism and ADHD. She is the mum of three and is based in Wiltshire in the UK. Hi, Lucinda. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. It's great to have you on the show. Michelle, thank you so much for inviting me on. Now, today we're delving into a crucial aspect of health, nutrition for children. And as an expert on childhood nutrition, particularly neurodiverse children, you're going to be sharing some valuable insights and practical advice to empower parents and caregivers so that they can provide a well-balanced and nourishing diet for the little people in their lives. But before we dive into it, can you please introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background and your experience as a practitioner? Yeah, so I'm Lucinda Miller. I run a clinic called NatureDoc, which is a team of 25 nutritional therapists and naturopaths dotted around the UK. Actually, we have one moving to Australia and one in Ireland. So we're going a bit more international now, which is very exciting. And we specialize mainly in women's health and children's health. Yeah, I've got three kids. So two of mine have ADHD, one has dyspraxia, and the little one had Casma protein allergy, and my middle one, when she was eight, got Lyme's disease. So we've had a sort of mix of different things that's been going on personally. But I realized very early on that there was very little being covered on children's health. And it sort of almost declined actually over the years rather than got bigger. And I, but anyway, I just, I'm passionate about getting children right. Because if you can get children's nutrition right from the start, you can see such wonderful changes and their trajectory for the long term is so much better. And I love working with the parents because the parents are so determined. You know, if you're not getting any sleep, if they're not eating, if they're whinging and whining all day or whatever, you know, they're not talking or whatever it might be be it's just so hard as a parent you know it's hard enough being a parent and then you add these extra layers in so um yeah I I just been doing this for a really long time now and built the team very sort of naturally organically through you know need because whenever we've you know diaries have got rather full up we've sort of built in someone else and they're all amazing I do an 18-month mentoring scheme with them. And so, you know, they're, they're all really, really amazing. And we do the functional medicine approach. So we look at a lot of tests. We might do hair tests. We might do stool tests. We might do urine tests. We might do blood tests, depending on what they need. And this gives us the information, really, that we need. Because 
As an adult, you can work with an adult quite easily without doing testing because they're able to explain what's going on inside. But children find it very hard to be able to explain how they feel. And also because they're young, young little people, you want to be very careful that you don't give them too much of anything or even that you don't underplay it either, because sometimes the RDA is not enough and you need to give a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And we might touch on some of those tests a bit later on, because some of our listeners might not be aware of sort of the, the breadth of testing that can be done beyond what you can get, you know, sort of at your, at your GPs, because there's some fantastic functional tests out there, isn't there? Oh, yeah, they're just phenomenal. And I would say when you go to your GP, they will offer blood tests and they are really, really helpful at understanding either really acute issues. So, you know, has your child got a significant infection? You know, is there, you know, something more going on? So they're basically trying to find evidence to be able to refer them on to the hospital to see whether, you know, it's medically important or not. But with a lot of the clients that we're seeing, these are chronic long-term things. So they not much comes up in the blood test. You might get low ferritin, which is iron stores. You might get low B12, maybe low folate, but not much else. They, they won't do vitamin D tests on children unless they have a chronic issue that is being monitored. So that needs to be done privately. So you don't get that much information. So it is helpful to see there's nothing bigger going on. But these functional tests are incredible because they can really hone in on, are they low in zinc? Are they low in magnesium? Are they low in selenium? All these things that really aren't, aren't well tested in the blood. Mm, yeah, no, it's fantastic. And then you've got the stool test as well, which are kind of more comprehensive than what gets offered. You know, the GPs are sometimes just looking for like an infection, but that, you know, you're looking at the kind of the microbiome, what's happening on in the gut as well. Yeah. So a stool test, for instance, that's done through the GP will literally be looking for things like salmonella, you know, it's really significant acute issues. So if they don't have a, you know, runny tummy, then there's very unlikely they're going to come up with much. Sometimes they will pick up high calprotectin, which is an inflammatory bowel. But again, that tends to be monitored rather than actioned for six months, just unless they really aren't putting on any weight or not growing. So again, you know, the stool test will give you a better understanding of more milder inflammatory issues that may be not impacting them so much, but maybe, you know, affecting their mood. It may be causing inflammation in the skin. It may be causing inflammation in the mind. You know, there's so many factors and the gut microbiome is so important. And I still fear that even though you can buy them privately now, I fear that we are at least 10 years, if not 20 years away from being able to access these through the NHS. And they go in a really big deep dive about all the different probiotic strains and, you know, the bad bugs that shouldn't be in there, like yeast overgrowth and clostridia and all these things that, you know, can, and strep that can cause so much havoc. Yeah, they really can. Okay, well, we'll, we'll touch on some testing a bit later on, but thank, thanks for giving us some initial insight there. It's, um, there's so much to know, isn't there? Absolutely. So let's, let's move on to nutrition for children. So could you firstly start off by outlining the specific nutritional needs for children and explain how these differ across various age groups, sort of from babies to, to teenagers? Really, overall, my kind of main mantra is that children need a really varied diet to be able to provide the nutrients that they need. 
However, the reality of today is that most kids do not have a particularly varied diet. Now, for instance, they tend to be quite carbohydrate heavy, quite wheat heavy, quite dairy heavy. And I'm not anti any of these foods. It's just that they tend to come up a lot. And so, and they're often quite fussy. They you know, might have one or two veg, maybe a few fruits. They might be allergic to nuts, you know, and all these things. So th- it's actually really hard to get a very varied diet. Some kids are amazing. And if parents have really embraced nutrition early on, they've often developed these wonderful taste buds and they do very well. And, you know, when you look at their bloods, they've got good iron levels and B12 and folate. And when you do the other tests, they're, they're abundant, but in all these nutrients. But the reality is most kids are quite fussy, quite tricky. There's an awful lot of ultra processed foods going around, which tend to be very devoid in minerals and zinc and omega-3 and things like that, which is so key. Cooking from scratch is the best thing that you can do to provide those nutrients and to really be inventive about what you put into what you give them. So for instance, if your child won't eat eggs, then, you know, get egg pasta, put egg in the mash, put egg in the porridge. You know, there are these ways to get egg in or make pancakes, veg, grate it into the bolognese, grate it into the to the muffins, whatever, to get more in. So, you know, children need the same nutrients as adults, but probably in smaller amounts. And when you're looking at supplements over and above a good healthy diet, usually you're looking at about a quarter of an adult dose whilst they're babies, and then and maybe up to about the age of three. And then after about three, then you're looking at probably a half dose until they're about 11. And then after that, then once they get to 12, they can have an adult dose. So rather than go deep diving into all the specific nutrients they need, because they need all these nutrients, they need all the B vitamins, they need the water-soluble vitamins like you know, A, A, C, et cetera, um, C, you know, et cetera. They need all the minerals like magnesium, selenium, iron, et cetera. And they need lots of omega-3 and choline. And these all come from all the brilliant foods. So when you actually list what foods contain these, very often it's red meat, it's high protein foods like eggs, dairy, lots of beans and pulses, and also lots of greens and lots of vegetables. So those are the key foods. You can get some of these things in nuts and seeds and so forth, but generally those are the main foods that you are going to get the nutrition from. And it's, but getting back to basics, isn't it? Those kind of basic foods really and that the thing that always gets me is when you go out to eat and that you see the children's menu and it's you know all these lovely foods that could be on the adults menu and then you've got the same old things the the chicken nuggets and chips and the, you know all of those types of things but it'd be great to see some more you know what's on the adult menu for for the kids I think rather than going to these ultra post processed kind of foods I agree. I think, you know, a lot of parents just want a peaceful meal. So, you know, if you give them chips, they'll be quiet and then you put the iPad in front of them and they'd be even more quiet. But actually, the reality is we do need to change the culture in this country. 
And even when people are on holiday, this happens too. It tends to be pizza, chips, you know, sausages, whatever, or chicken nuggets rather than, you know, something a bit more colourful, a bit more fun. I think, you know, some of the restaurants are getting there, but, it, you know, you really need to get this sort of culture to change overall, I think. Yeah, it's definitely a culture thing for sure. Okay, what are some of the common nutritional deficiencies that, that you see in children in your practice? Well, I'd say the primary one will be iron. I think iron is so underestimated how important it is. So when you know that iron is the most abundant mineral in your central nervous system, then that makes a massive like wow moment. If you think, wow, that is going to help with mood, it's going to help with focus, it's going to help with energy, it's going to help with immunity, it's going to help with all, you know, so many different parts of a child's life. I'm going to call this a trend, but it's not, you know, it's just that movement towards people eating white meats, going plant-based. I'm not anti any of these diets at all, but if you've got a child with that is plant-based and they don't eat a good sort of tin of beans a day, then hardly get, they're not going to get very much iron in. If they don't eat their green veg, they're not going to get much iron in. They won't eat apricots and so forth. They're not going to get enough iron in. But even the you know, people who aren't plant-based, you know, the chicken nuggets are white breast, you know, pizza has got no iron in it, a lot of pasta and tomatoes, you know. So if the child's, say, getting bolognese two or three times a week, that's good. But a child's need for iron is very high. So we're looking at, you know, a toddler and above is like seven, eight to 10 milligrams a day. And, you know, one steak, you might get four to five, you know, a tin of beans, you might get a similar amount, you know, it's, it's really, really not that much. So to get enough iron in, is incredibly hard these days. And I see that as such an important thing. And it's something that you can spot quite easily. They tend to have quite pale skin. You know, the beds of their nails tend to be quite pale. They're often very tired. They often have a sore tummy and a very low appetite. So if their appetite's really reduced and they're looking sort of pale and tired, then they may well be low in iron. Especially, I always ask the parents, I say, you know, especially bum, when you were pregnant, were you low in iron? So he said, yeah, actually I was, you know, and I'm thinking, well, you know, this child has probably started off with, you know, rel- not anemia, but relatively low iron levels. So I'd say that's probably the key one that we see. Another one which we see a lot of is zinc. And zinc is the second most abundant mineral in your central nervous system. It helps with immunity, it helps with sense of smell and taste. It helps to make all your gastric juices. So it helps the child to grow, helps with loose bowel. So it's helpful for so many different things. But from a, you know, sort of child's learning and developmental perspective, it helps with things like working memory, executive function, processing, self-regulation, emotional regulation. So it's absolutely key if your child's got mood swings, always got a cold or a cough, isn't growing very fast. It tends to dip massively when a child's going through a growth spurt. So, you know, often they go through a growth spurt, they get lots of colds and coughs, and, you know, they just don't have enough zinc in the system. And zinc rich foods are things like shellfish, which we've always given our kids, but I think a lot of families don't, you know, probably don't think they can for some reason. You can get zinc from dairy products and meat and other fish as well and nuts and seeds. So you can get zinc in quite easily. But again, getting enough in is hard. And especially if the child has a 
very low morning appetite. They're just not hungry. That can often indicate that they need zinc. And very often during puberty is a time where you will suddenly find that their diet narrows and they become very hooked on the ultra processed foods and they're going through puberty and, you know, the hormones are flying. Maybe they decided to cut out meat because for, you know, for their moral global world reasons, whatever, they're doing that too. And that means suddenly they they don't want to have dairy as well. So suddenly they're not getting very much zinc. And this is the time when their body needs zinc the most. And very often that's where you suddenly get, you know, the beginnings of anxiety, you get the beginnings of eating disorders, you get the beginning of low mood. And also, you know, acne gets worse when you're low in zinc. So zinc's really, really key. So I'd say those are the two most important ones that we see are very low in these kids. And with zinc, because that wouldn't be something that would be routinely tested, especially on the NHS. Are you just looking for symptoms, the ones you've mentioned, or are you recommending to get tested for that one privately? So the GP can run a zinc blood test, which is very helpful. So that is possible. And they will they will usually do that if you specifically ask. We tend to do quite in-depth testing for zinc. We tend to see a lot of kids in our clinic with things like ADHD and autism and dyslexia and so forth. And we find that you do need to understand the balance between something called copper, which is another mineral, and zinc in the body. And so that can be quite in-depth testing. It can involve urine testing and hair testing, usually over and above maybe the, hair, the, the blood testing. And this is because zinc is so important for the brain. And a number of studies have found that children, babies that are born, who then later on get diagnosed with dyslexia or ADHD or autism, are often born with a low zinc status. Mm, very interesting. And and how about vitamin D? That is that another one that you find a lot of children are deficient in? So because the NHS recommend that all of us take vitamin D as a supplement between October and March. They have taken that off their blood testing options from the sort of GP's scope as such. So they say, well, if they're getting vitamin D every day, they shouldn't go low. However, there are some very good online now finger prick tests you can get for 30, 35 pounds, something like that, which are quite easy to do, not too traumatic to do at home. And that can give you a better indication of what's going on. Obviously, we, we run private tests, private blood tests, and we can, you know, get a really big deep dive into what's going on. But the people that have been able to get these blood tests done, we find almost without a shadow of a doubt, they are low. And I, I had a mum who got in touch with me at the end of the summer and said, you know, we went to Portugal for two weeks. We made sure they had an hour without sun cream on so that, that you know, at the beginning of the day so they could get some sun. We've been working really hard trying to get them out and about. And still they were low in vitamin D. So there are quite a high proportion of people have a hold some, a set of genes or genetic SNPs, which are where they've inherited, where they find it very hard to synthesize vitamin D. So they need a little bit more than the normal. And so the RDA is the minimum. And you can go up to around 10 times that from age 12 plus and less than that when they're smaller. So basically the maximum, and this is only for six to eight weeks, but this is to top them up to get them to the right level if they're low. As a baby, it's 1500 IU. 
as a toddler up until about 11. It's 2,500. And from 12 plus, it's 4,000 a day. So that's you know a lot more than the RDA. But as I said, it's only for six to eight weeks if you know that your child is specifically low vitamin D. Now, this time of year, which we're recording in mid-January, is the time of the year where vitamin D levels are going to naturally be at their lowest. They, you tend to store vitamin D in your system for around three months. Remember, we had a lousy summer last summer. It was very, very cloudy, rainy. None of us got really enough of this, the summer sun in the UK, unless you were lucky to go abroad. So I think a lot of people are low this year, and it's potentially why we're seeing so many kids who've got such poor immune systems. So it is a very important thing to to put in. Even if you put in the RDA, it will help. And I think that by the time you get to January, this is the January and February and March are the lowest of the low when you come to vitamin D. And then from hopefully from April onwards, we'll get a bit of sunshine and everything will be better. <laughs> Hurrah, roll on summer. <laughs> but, it, but it doesn't last long, as you say, in, in countries like the UK where it's cloudy quite often and, and cold. Yeah, you need a lot more. And how about omega-3? Because you touched on that before. How would one go about testing for omega-3? So omega-3 can be tested through a blood spot test through a couple of the labs that we use that isn't done through the GP. However, most kids tend to be quite low in omega-3 rather than the other omegas. When we ever, when we do that profile, we often find that the oleic acid, which is basically the olive oil, is quite high, which is quite funny because everyone's using a lot of olive oil these days. But we find that the omega-3, which comes from things like oily fish, so salmon, sardines, anchovies, mackerel, etc., uh, prawns, are, is relatively low. And this is because, you know, remember during school week, if they're at school for five lunches, they might get fish and chips on a Friday, but that's not an oily fish, that's cod. So they're not getting any fish at school that's, that's measurable enough to give them some omega-3. So that needs to rely on supper. And I would say even the most conscientious families would only give fish maybe once, maybe twice a week. So, you know, it's still not that much. I think it's really good to have, you know, we've got a tradition in the UK of having things like kippers and kedgeri and things like that for breakfast. And I know that sounds quite sort of like, oh, that's quite complicated. But, you know, this is a way to top up. And one of the ways I suggest that people do is to make lots of fish pate. So you have, you know, you can get some nice trout or nice salmon or nice, you know, smoked mackerel, and you can blend it with a bit of cream cheese, maybe a bit of lemon juice, maybe a bit of parsley. And then you can spread it on crackers when they come back from school. You can put it in sandwiches, again, as snacks, or, you know, if they take a packed lunch, or even at breakfast, if they're game for that. So getting omega-3 in more frequently is really, really helpful. And because so many children do not need to eat enough fish, then topping up with an omega-3 supplement can be really, really helpful. And there's a lot of evidence that supplementation specifically with omega-3 can be helpful. This can come in liquids, can come in chewables or caplets that tend to, you know, can either be chewed or swallowed. And you can get both fish oils, but they you can also, if you're vegan or plant-based, you can get marine algae 
omega-3. And probably the best solution if you are plant-based or you're not eating much fish or you have a child with an allergy to fish or whatever that might be. The problem is there are very, very, very few marine algae-based omega-3 children's supplements as such. So you have to be a bit inventive. And I don't know why it's the case. Um, I still haven't found why there aren't just a plethora of them around. But basically, you would get an adult one. It's They're all very low dose. That's the problem is the marine algae is you know much lower dose than, say, a good punchy omega-3 supplement. So you would just get one of the adults and you would probably snip it open, squeeze it into a, into, you know, a yogurt or into a smoothie or whatever. And that would be, you know, a good way of doing it. The reason why marine algae is very good is basically the marine algae is what the fish eat to create that omega-3 from within. Other sources, which people don't really know about in terms of omega-3, are not just meat, but grass-fed meat. So, outdoor reared animals will have more vitamin D in their in their meat. Equally, organic whole milk will have more vitamin D than there will in any conventional milk, so non-organic milk. And also, if they skim it, so if they semi-skim or skim, then they will t- be taking out the omega-3 and the vitamin D. So it's important to have organic whole milk, grass-fed meat, if they're not eating fish. And then if they're plant-based, people always say, well, what about, you know, things like walnuts? What about flax, chia, hemp, etc.? Yes, they all do contain omega-3 and they're great sources of omega-3. However, the DHA form, which is the form that is the most abundant omega-3 in the brain, is not in these. So they have to convert them from the ALA that is in these plant-based ones into DHA. And that's a really complex process, really, really complex. And you need really good nutrition status to be able to do that. So you need enough B vitamins, you need enough magnesium, you need enough zinc, you um, shouldn't have a diet that's too ultra processed or full of saturated fats, etc., to be able to synthesize that. And even then, you only maximum will convert 10% of all those flax seeds, walnuts, et cetera, that you're eating into the DHA that's so important for eye development and brain development. And if you're a baby, if you're male, if you're low in the other nutrients, you might only be converting less than 1%. So it's a tiny, tiny amount. So it's really helpful for your diet overall, but do not rely on them. And so if you are vegan, vegetarian, plant-based, your child hardly eats any animal products, you know, they live off pasta and cheese and jam sandwiches or whatever it might be, then they probably will need to have a top up of a supplement. It's wonderful to be able to do these tests, but you know, at the end of the day, they take time and cost a bit of money and all that sort of stuff. So one of my top tips for spotting whether your child needs omega-3, and this is not the only reason for this sign, but it is a very, very common reason for low omega-3, is something called chicken skin. So it's the bumpy red skin at the top of the arms that feels a bit rough like sandpaper. It's known as keratosis pilaris, and doctors will just say slap on cream, but it can be indicator of inflammation, and omega-3 brings down inflammation. 
it can be an indicator of vitamin A need, omega-3 need. It can be an indicator of, of, of gluten intolerance. So it can be an indicator of lots of different things. But omega-3 is something that usually helps. And you can literally, in three months, the skin will get smoother if it's an omega-3 deficiency. And often then you see all the other good things like the brain waking up and them calmer and you know everything, sleeping better, all these amazing things. So omega-3 is important for so many different things. And you can usually spot it. It's not just on the arms. The kids that are probably more, dis, you know, the high, high dyslexics, the ADHD is maybe the autistic kids will often have them on their face. So you often have this sort of rough, slightly sort of red skin on the cheeks. And in more extremists, you might sit on on the torso and at the top of legs as well. It just the whole skin feels slightly bumpy rather than smooth. Mm-hmm. That's a great tip. Yeah, that's definitely one to look out for. And just going back to the fish, because I know this this might be a question on some of the listeners' minds. There's that whole thing around heavy metals and and you know the oceans being polluted and and transferring into the fish. What are your thoughts on on that? Obviously, because fish is important. It's really really hard to get the balance right. I'm not going to lie. So. I think that going for fish that have been in the fresh water, so tra- that's why I quite like short stream trout, for instance, you know, a little fish, so things like sardines, mackerel, anchovies are great because they're going to have less toxicity to them. And But avoid tuna fish, really. You can have tuna fish occasionally. We do. Delicious, amazing. But not to have as, you know, very often people, were, kids will have baked potato with tuna fish every day at lunch at school or, you know, tuna fish sandwiches or tuna bake. So it can suddenly mount up that you're getting rather a lot of tuna. So that's the one that is very high in mercury. But that's the beauty of the supplements. If it's a very good quality one, anyway, that has been screened for these. So they have purified them and taken out plastics, chemicals, mercury, etc. So the, the, these are actually, if you are worried about those things, it's better to go with a supplement. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of Natural Health with CNM. Still to come, I talk to Lucinda about the foods that rob the body of nutrients, the cause of picky eating in children, and easy recipes that appeal to kids to boost their nutrition. Are you or a loved one struggling with health issues? Would you like to change career and become a natural therapist? CNM offers a wide range of short courses and diploma training both online and in class. Contact us today for a limited time to save 10% on short courses using the code PODCAST. Visit www.cnmpodcast.com. Now, we know that there's certain dietary and lifestyle factors, you've already mentioned ultra-processed foods, that particularly rob the body of nutrients. Can you give us some examples of other dietary factors or lifestyle factors and explain why they're detrimental to a child's health? So I do think the biggest elephant in the room are ultra-processed foods. And just to, I just want to sh- expand on this a little bit more. I honestly, there are no other foods that I feel are detrimental to the health. Now, I'm, some people would say, well, what about sugar? And I go, well, you know what? A little bit of sugar in a pudding on a Sunday lunch is not going to cause havoc on the body. Okay. It's not perfect. I'd ideally not have white refined sugar, you'd probably go for honey, maple syrup, coconut sugar, etc., rather than the refined stuff, but it's okay. So basically, what is an ultra-processed food? Why is it suddenly come into everyone's sort of 
it's been on all the headlines, it's on, on the TV and documentaries and so forth. What is it? So this was first identified in a study done in Brazil. So Brazil has always been quite a healthy country and always, you know, most of them have had quite good weight and so forth. And suddenly there was this absolute explosion of obesity. And they were trying to work out why. And they felt that it was probably due to the introduction of mass-produced foods coming into the country. You know, big corporations like Nestle were reaching, you know, people even in very remote areas, Coca-Cola, etc. You know, so this was causing, you know, they thought maybe this is it. So they divided food into four categories. And these four categories are basically giving you the understanding of how processed something is. And they identified that if you were to reduce the ultra-processed foods dramatically to below 20% of the body or in, in the weekly, you know, in your weekly food, then the outcomes were so much better. So I'll give an example of these four categories in terms of an apple. So you think of eating an apple, an apple a day keeps the doctor away, right? It's got fiber, it's got vitamin C, it's really good for you. Now, that is a completely unprocessed food, okay? That comes from nature, okay? The second stage is when you turn that apple into apple juice. So that takes away the fiber. There's still some vitamin C in there. It's still pretty good for you, probably not in huge amounts, but, you know, still apple juice is pretty healthy, especially if you squeeze it yourself. Then you've got the third category, which is minimally processed. And this is where you've got all sort of processed, which is where you've got things like you're pickling something, you're salting something, you you might put something in a tin, you might put something in a jar. You, so it's the sort of processing that we might do at home. So that's peeling, chopping, blending, cooking, all these things. So this is processing, okay? So we process at home just as much as the food manufacturers will do so. So making homemade pesto or whatever is bringing together lots of lovely things and turning them into something delicious. And then this fourth category is the ultra-processed side of things. So the ultra-processed foods are foods that have been produced by a food company that probably has more than a handful of ingredients. So when you look at the label, there'll be ingredients on there that you probably don't recognize as food that you would be able to have in your kitchen. So if it talks about things like emulsifiers, preservatives, sweeteners, natural flavorings, these are all ultra-processed ingredients and it makes that food ultra-processed. It's not just the ingredients, it's also the way they make it. So for instance, it would be almost impossible to make Rice Krispies at home. It'd be almost impossible to to make a shreddy at home just because we don't have the technology to be able to do that. We couldn't make margarine, for instance, because you need incredibly high heat and processing to make that. So anything that has been made in a factory using high heat, different processing, puffing food up. So we could be even looking at the children's, you know, little carrots, puffs and things like that. Those are all ultra processed, even if the ingredients look pretty okay. So these ultra-processed foods have been made to be so delicious, so palatable, almost addictive in nature. And that's why when you open a packet of crisps, you you, know, you think, oh, I just have one or two crisps, and you end up eating the whole family pack on your own. And it's just impossible because they've been made, they've spent hundreds of thousands of pounds, if not more, on on 
refining the taste sensation, that mouthfeel, making it sure that it's properly addictive. So it's none of our fault, you know. Also, we're getting all these messages from the government and so forth, like we need to reduce salt, we need to reduce sugar, we need to reduce fat. So a lot of these companies, you know, the original version wasn't too bad. So whether it's digestive biscuits or whatever, you know, was flour, you know, oil, sugar, you know, it wasn't too bad all those years ago. But now when you look at the ingredients, it's got masses of ingredients because they're trying to reduce sugar, reduce salt, reduce fat at the same time as make it taste nice and keep it, you know, so everyone wants to eat it. And that's an incredibly hard juggle to do. So, you know, we've got all these messages that are sort of crossing over. So everything's becoming incredibly ultra-processed because of trying to ban all these things. But, you know, there are so many good fats to have. You know, they ignore things like omega-3. And, you know, none of these ultra-processed foods contain things like iron and zinc and all these really key foods. So I reckon that if you cook from scratch as much as possible, be totally relaxed about your kids going to birthday parties or when granny gives them, you know, a treat or whatever, that's okay. But most of the time, cook from scratch, get them involved in the kitchen, reduce that ultra processed imprint on their bodies, then they're going to be so much healthier. And then you don't need to worry about the other foods that are none of them are bad, which is just brilliant. You just have to think, I'm not, I'm just going to keep that packaged food to a minimum because I know that's inflammatory. I know it's not got the nutrients they need. They're going to be hungry all the time. They're going to be ratty. They're going to be putting on weight. Our, our, our British children are shorter than other kids in the whole wide world now because of our ultra-processed movement. It's unbelievable. So they're shorter, but they're wider. And so, you know, it's not doing our kids very good. So if you want a child to be tall and strong and lean, have a good immune system, good brain, then you do want to cook from scratch as much as possible. And I know we're busy, but we've been told we're too busy to cook. We've been told we're too... But actually, you know what? It's fun to cook at the weekends, make some muffins. You can make 15 in a batch and you know eat a few at the weekend and the rest go in the freezer in a bag. So you've always got them. Cookies the same. And the kids love cooking with parents and then they learn how important it is for them to have nutrition and how much fun it is to cook. So they'll go on and do that when they're young adults and when they're raising their families. Yeah, cooking from scratch is is super important. And I think we definitely all need to, to, to get back in the kitchen because there are so many simple recipes. It doesn't have to be complicated and, and you don't need a lot of ingredients, say, for example, to make, uh, you know, homemade cookies or, or a, you know, a muesli bar or something like that. You sometimes need three, five ingredients maximum. I, I create a recipe every week to go in our newsletter and on our blog. And, you know, some of them just have a handful of ingredients. They think like I did a dal this weekend and it was everything we had in the cupboard. We had the spinach in the freezer and everything else was in the cupboard. You know, we had tin tomatoes, we had lentils, we had, you know, all those things. It was brilliant. And it's so filling, so easy. Mm, and you can make batches of them, can't you? And I think that's when it comes to that meal prepping. Make batches, freeze it, so it's easy to, you know, to take out when you're short of time. Mm, absolutely. And just wanted to touch quickly on the whole gluten-free, vegan, because a lot of people automatically think that those foods are healthy because they've got that label, but they're also ultra-processed. And sometimes they contain a lot more ingredients than, you know, the the, the non gluten-free version, for example. What are your thoughts on that? If you have celiac disease or, you know, you have significant gluten intolerance, 
then I totally understand that you're desperate for a piece of bread, you know, some pasta, a cookie or whatever. And these are created for you. These foods are created for you so that you don't feel that you've left, you're being left out, you know, that you're able to have the same experience as the rest of the population. And that's why they've been created. It's damn, damn hard to make gluten-free bread that's not a brick. So they've worked incredibly hard to create these, but it does involve a lot of ultra processing to make it like light and fluffy to, you know, make it sort of just feel like real bread. And it still doesn't really, to be honest, but it's as good as they're going to get at the moment. So when you're gluten free, there are a few brands out there. You have to get them online. You know, they're not in the supermarkets of wonderful, really amazing sourdough gluten-free breads, et cetera. You can get really good quality gluten-free pasta now with, you know, things like legumes and so forth in there. And, you know, you can make brilliant cookies and you don't need to use the gluten-free flours. You can use, you know, ground almonds and sorghum flour and chickpea flour and all sorts of things. So it's really possible to do it. I would say if you or your child is celiac or can't do gluten, it's really important to learn all about this and to really learn about all the good nutrition that can be given to them. Because very often, if you're celiac, it means you haven't been absorbing your nutrients for quite a while. And therefore, you might be low in iron and B12 and vitamin D and things like that. So you may need to work much, much harder on your diet. So I would say, if this is if this is this case, learn to cook, enjoy cooking together, you know, really seek out the nutrient dense foods because you need them way more than, than say the average population. And I know it's hard work, but I'm sorry. It's just one of those things that until the day that, you know, they find a cure for celiac disease, that's what you got to do. Mm-hmm. No, thank you. Thank you for, for explaining that. Now, before we get on to some more sort of how to and tips, can we just talk briefly about the gut and, and its role in overall health, especially children's health? Yes, absolutely. So I'm really passionate about gut health. It has such great implications for so many different aspects of a child's health, whether it's their immune system, whether it's them tolerating milk, whether you know they get sore tummies and their neurodevelopment is huge too. So the gut microbiome is obviously, if anyone doesn't know, is billions and billions of bacteria in our bellies, which help to make vitamins. They help us to digest. They help to dial down something called inflammation. They help to make neurotransmitters. Now, neurotransmitters are brain chemicals. And so it's thought that about 90% of serotonin is created in the gut. And, and serotonin helps you sleep, helps you poop, and gives you a makes you have a lovely, happy, good mood. So without enough serotonin, you're going to be grumpy, you're not going to sleep very well, you're going to be constipated. You know, it's a tough one. But the gut microbiome makes lots and lots of different um, microbes. The two that are the most important for children, I think, personally, the one that's always low in the stool test without a shadow of a doubt is lactobacillus. And lactobacillus helps us digest milk. So loads of kids are, you know, they don't have dairy because they get ear infections or they've got cow's milk protein allergy or whatever. So they avoid dairy entirely, but it's never replaced with the lactobacillus. And you can't get lactobacillus that easily in other foods that are non-dairy. So basically lactobacillus, as I said, it's brilliant for the immune system, but it also helps to make these two brain neurotransmitters, these brain chemicals. One's called acetylcholine. And acetylcholine 
helps with working memory, processing. It helps with self-regulation and emotional regulation. It helps with so many aspects of learning and a child's development. It's key. Lactobacillus also makes something called GABA. And GABA is our cool, calm, chilled out neurotransmitter in the brain. It's how you feel having had a nice cup of tea. It's how you feel having had a massage or a yoga session. And it makes you feel very zen-like and calm. And if you don't have enough GABA, then you're going to be anxious. You're not going to sleep very well. You're going to be very on edge, often mood swings, etc. And of course, that's what a lot of kids experience on a daily basis. And especially the ones when you think back, yeah, they've been dairy-free, they've been on lots of antibiotics, etc. So I do think that lactobacillus is really key for, for kids. The other one is bifidobacterium. And this is really, really key too to know about. Bifido infantis is the first bifidobacteria to be populated in the gut when a baby's born. And this is thought to protect the child from significant infection. You know, once they start feeding, once they start weaning onto solid foods, obviously the gut then grows and has more different different types of bacteria in there. But the bifido infantis is the one that protects them from significant infection in the first few months of life. Now, there were studies done. Microbiome's been known for a really long time, way longer than anyone would ever believe. So over 100 years ago, there was a study done by this guy, and he basically found that breastfed babies almost exclusively had really high abundance of this bifido infantis in their gut and not many other microbes at all. But the bottle-fed babies at the time had much, much less. And you'd expect that sounds, you know, that sounds quite logical, doesn't it? Now, move 100 years forward, and the same studies done in the same sort of manner, and they now have found that the breastfed babies of today have less bifido infantis than the bottle-fed babies 100 years ago. Oh, wow, that is interesting. Really interesting. So it means that basically there's less protection from when they're little. Okay. So that means this is why, you know, you have a baby 10 days later, they're in hospital with meningitis or, you know, something awful like that. You know, they're just picking up all these because there's not enough bifido. So bifido infantis is the key one for when they're little. It also protects you from, this is where my neurodivergence hat comes on. It protects you from also building up the bad bacteria in your gut. So the bacteria that can cause inflammation can lead to, it can be neurotoxic, so toxic to the brain. So there's things like Clostridia, Klebsiella, Citrobacter. And when you test a baby's gut microbiome that's maybe having some developmental delay or so forth, you often find these and very little bifido. So, so, so that's, that's the, often a picture that we see. And because these are neurotoxic, they can skew the development over time. Mm-hmm. And what was the reason behind the breastfed babies having less bifido 100 years later? Do you think that's dietary and lifestyle factors? They put it down to ultra-clean living, you know, because everything's being sanitised so much antibiotic use and also possibly um, reflux medications. Mm, Interesting. And now children, a lot of neurodivergent children, especially those with autism, tend to have gut issues, don't they? Especially something called leaky gut. Could you explain that in a bit more detail? So there was a study I read relatively recently and it 
it cited that I think it was 86% of autistic children have some kind of gut issue. So it might be constipation, it might be reflux, it might just might be sore gut. You know, there are all sorts of things that could be going on. They often have allergies. There's something called eosinophilic esophageal problems, which is EOE. And this is, you know, a really significant sort of reflux. And that can lead to things like very, very, very selective eating and so forth. So yeah, it's a really high proportion. And if you think about it, if there's problems in the gut, you're looking at that gut microbiome and you're thinking, is that out of sync too? And, you know, as I was talking about, these bad bacteria can skew the microbiome and be neurotoxic on the brain, which may potentially be part of the picture of why they're, they're, they're developing in a different way. So, yeah, so we do Gen- generally run microbiome tests on the autistic kids to find out what's going on and work on their gut. It's quite difficult to establish leaky gut. We do it through a urine test called the metabolomics through Genova Diagnostics, which is quite a good marker for it. And basically, leaky gut is where... So imagine our gut is a tube that goes between your mouth and your anus. Okay, it's a very long tube with lots of things going on. But it should be you know, quite a tight tube that's quite well-insulated tube. Okay, what happens is in the small intestine, the food is digested, broken down into very, very small components, and then it gets absorbed through that gut lining through things called villi. And in between the villi are tight junctions. And these are meant to be tight, as in they're meant to be closed, right? And so just the nutrients are meant to get through the villi, and that's what gets into the bloodstream to the cells, and that's what makes us thrive. Anyway, what happens in when a child has an out-of-sync gut, very often they have this leaky gut, which is gut permeability, which essentially means that the tight junctions between the villi and small intestine get opened a little bit. And this means things like partially digested food gets in. And then there's an immune system in the lining of the gut too. And it goes, alert, alert, alert. This is egg. This is peanut. This is you know, gluten or whatever, and then causes a sort of inflammatory cascade throughout the body. But equally, it can mean that toxins from the food that you're eating that would normally be protected and then, you know, pooped out is getting through too. So they're more likely to build up with things like mercury and, you know, the things from the tuna fish, for instance. So a child with a compromised gut will more likely to get the, you know, the buildup of mercury from the tuna rather than a child with a perfectly good gut that's doing one or two poops a day that are brown, sausage shaped and going to the loo. So basically to help to heal a leaky gut, we there are five stages that you can do. And basically it's removing the foods that are causing the triggers at the moment that the immune system's gone alert, alert, alert to, trying to remove the back, bad bacteria and then trying to repopulate with the probiotics and trying to get the good diet in and then trying to replenish with the good nutrients that might be missing, whether it's, you know, the vitamins or the minerals, and then by healing the gut, so so repairing the gut, and that's using things like lovely herbs like slippery elm and marshmallow root and aloe vera, glutamine and so forth. And then over time, it can mean, and I don't promise this, this is not everyone's outcome at all, and some kids have got such compromised guts, but generally what we find is that they can tolerate foods, their their brain suddenly opens up, they're able to focus, they're calmer, they're 
Sometimes speech, you know, opens up all sorts of things, and it's really exciting. We do a lot of gut health work. Oh, amazing! Thank you for that in-depth overview because that's really, really helpful. Because just that link between the gut and nutrition and health is is just so key. So now let's move on to your tips. Obviously, you've given lots of tips and advice as, we, as we've gone through, but just to, just to break things down for parents and caregivers. So, what are kind of some practical tips to to, you know, make food both nutritious and appealing to children and also to help parents, you know, make sure that, you know, their, their children's diets are well balanced and nutritious. I think it's making it fun, isn't it? You know, it's thinking just instead of just giving them a banana, chop it up, make a little bare eyes, put a couple of blueberries on top, maybe making a fruit salad, you know, I, I just love using things like dragon fruit powder to make things bright pink or, you know, blue spirulina to make things bright blue. You know, things like that are great. Now, these might may be new to you, you the, the listeners, they may not have heard of these things, but it's really get the kids engaged with actually cooking, get them into the process, get them into the kitchen, get them a little apron so they feel really grown up and, you know, a nice wooden spoon and get them involved even from a really early age. And I think, you know, it's finding things that they really love. So if they love donuts, make a healthy donut. If they love muffins, make them a really healthy muffin. You know, find foods that they love with a bolognese. If they love bolognese, really supercharge it with loads of veggies. That's a fantastic tip. And also eating together, I think, can be quite important. When they see you eating healthy foods, they kind of learn that way as well, don't they? Absolutely. So if you are trying to get them to eat their broccoli and you're having a biscuit and a cup of tea, you know, they just won't eat their broccoli. So I I used to often sit down with my kids at five o'clock and I'd have a little plate or a little bowl and I'd have some broccoli and some chicken. You know, I'd have a small amount of what they were having because that was the time of the day I was starving. I couldn't wait till our dinner. I mean, we now all eat together and we have done for years. But, you know, I remember when my husband was getting back quite late from work, we used to eat separately. And actually, as soon as we started eating together, it was just so much easier for all of us. It was one meal. And, you know, what I would do is I knew my husband would get bored if it was just, you know, kiddie food. So I'd always make something really nice, like a quinoa salad or a lentil salad or something, put it on the table. And the kids were quite curious, you know, they pick out, I know, a bit of pomegranate or something. And that made them curious. And then they'd eat a bit more. So it was a good way of introducing them to them as well. But, you know, they will lead, you know, they won't do everything that you do, but they will follow a lot with what you do. So it's good to lead by example. Mm -hmm, Definitely. And do you have any favorite recipes or go-to meals that you find work well for children? Well, if you're going to ask me one thing, waffles. (laughs) Get yourself a really good waffle maker. Get a ceramic one if you can. I've just got so many waffle recipes on my site and they are all delicious. And they're such a winner because they're crunchy, they're beige. You can get eggs, yogurt, carrot, apple, berries, beetroot. I mean, all sorts of things in them and they all taste amazing and kids just love them. And it's okay to get a bit of maple syrup on the side or whatever to dip, you know, delicious. And I think waffles are always a winner. Love waffles. Uh, I think that's a a great one. And as you say, you can put lots of different toppings and things on there as well. And how about for picky eaters? I know we've touched on it briefly, but what what causes picky eating and, and how can parents navigate this to make sure their children are eating the necessary nutrients? So a lot of kids who are picky are sensory kids. You know, they're very sensitive. Um, So the sense of smell, taste, texture, etc. What we see most of the time is that a baby actually weans onto food quite well. 
So, you know, they take to their mush and then they go on to handheld foods and all good. And then one day they have a gastric upset or they have a series of ear infections. So they're given antibiotics and that's where it all goes wrong. And the diet literally narrows almost overnight and they end up eating just a handful of foods. So my first port of call, if that's happened in that sort of kind of scenario, is try a probiotic. They're easy, they're tasteless, they can go in a teaspoon, you know, a fruit puree or yogurt or whatever they'll eat. Brilliant. And that in itself can turn kids' appetites around really quickly and start to expand their diets because their tummy feels well. So I fundamentally believe that children would prefer not to eat than to have a sore belly. And so, and they can associate the food with, with a sore belly. You know, if you've had a nasty gastric upset, you know, you've had some awful DMV thing going on. And if someone gave you a big Sunday roast, you just wouldn't want to touch it. But if someone gave you a piece of toast, you go, oh, yes, thank you very much. And you know that would be quite settling. So they're often craving the foods that's sort of settling on their tummy. They're just very intuitive, these kids. So I go with probiotics to begin with because that in itself can expand. The other thing is zinc. Zinc, as I said, helps with sense of smell, taste, and it can also affect your uh, perception of texture because it's so important for the central nervous system. So I would say that zinc is another one. Again, tasteless drops, easy going some apple juice or something. No, just an easy win. And that, again, can really make a difference. And then iron. As I said, iron gives you a low appetite, sore tummy. So again, get those iron levels up. Again, you can get drops and almost like apple juice flavoured kind of iron and things like that. And those are brilliant. And again, those three things, I think, can turn around a child's appetite pretty quickly. In clinic, we often find that children with these very small appetites have something called low pancreatic elastase, which basically means the pancreas is not producing enough enzymes to break down the food efficiently. So they always have this perpetual sort of sore tummy and feeling rather full. And so they only go for the foods they absolutely love. And this, you know, an easy thing. I mean, you know, everyone's got room for a chocolate. Everyone's got room for a cookie, haven't they? You know, even if they're super full. So that when you work on supporting that pancreatic elastase, that can make a massive difference. And we we see kids that have literally been eating two foods, and then they move on to meat and three veg in like four to six weeks. It's incredible. So I think most the mainstream sort of approach to fussy eating is round peg square hole sort of approach, which is over time, yes, they will expand their diet. And yes, you can supercharge the food. And that's what I do with the waffles and the muffins and the cookies. You know, they're all supercharged. They're full of protein and, you know, full of nutrients and iron and things like that. So they help. But, you know, some kids we see are so, so selective that you've got to go with the supplements. And sometimes, you know, the, the parents have just tried so hard. They're just pulling their hair out. They're so frustrated because, you know, they buy this new food or they make this new food and the child won't eat it. And this is where I love the supplements. Just, you know, it's a short term thing just to get them out of that hump. I, I think that's a great tip because looking at what's underlying it, as you say, it could be, you know, a simple nutritional deficiency that they can fix quite quite quickly. So that's great. And superfoods are great. The powders and things, you can sprinkle those into, as you say, muffins and things. Yeah, they're amazing. Absolutely amazing. And, you know, you can get some really good ones these days. You can get blends as well. And I just think they make them look pretty. So they're more appealing, you know, and then they give some extra nutrition. I think, great. Yeah, go for it. 
Amazing. Thank you so much. Now, I know we've talked a little bit about neurodivergent children, So, but are there any specific dietary considerations or approaches that can help these children in addition to what you've already mentioned? It's the general overall approach. What I find, I think the difference is when you test a neurotypical child, which is a child that's typically developing, even if they've got you know, a few things going on, gut issues, I don't know, skin issues, you'll find a few things that they need, maybe, you know, some zinc or whatever. But with the autistic kids, we find generally find overall, they're quite deficient in nutrients. So they do better on a, you know, really wide, broad spectrum, multi-nutrient. And because they tend to be more picky eaters, etc. There are, you know, I, I would say, you know, when you're, if anyone's a student of nutrition listening to this or anyone who knows a bit about nutrition, when you're learning about this, you usually learn about someone with an autoimmune condition, for instance, and they might have leaky gut, they might have the gut issues, they might have allergies, they might have thyroid issues, they might have adrenal issues, they might have blood sugar issues, they might have inflammation, they might have oxidative stress, they might have oxalates, they might have glutamate issues, da 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 some autistic kids have all of those. So it's basically dealing with all of those things at once. Uh, whereas the ADHD kids probably have half as many of those issues. And then the dyslexic kids probably half as much again. So it's kind of the more complex, the more neurological it becomes. And then you've got the kids with seizures. And then you've obviously got kids with, you know, all sorts of developmental delays and, and quite sort of very, very individualized presentations, which again can go out on different tangents on specifically things. But honestly, when you do testing, sometimes you come back and you get the sea of red, you know, all these things are out of sync. And it's, it's, it's devastating when you first see them, you think, oh my goodness, how are we going to get there? But you do eventually, but it can take years rather than, you know, months. Mm. I'm so glad we're doing this episode because I think it's so important to get this information out to parents because as you say they're they're kind of lost not knowing you know where to start and more and more children are getting diagnosed with with you know autism ADHD or some other some other condition and you know they're just only say, oh, well, go on some medication or try this or try that. But there's so much we can do naturopathically with nutrition and, and herbs and the testing. So yeah, it's been so insightful. So thank you for sharing that. Just to finish off, what's your top tip for instilling healthy habits in children? So I would say it's lead by example, cook from scratch as much as possible, try and bring a really healthy food culture into the house. So We don't talk about naughty chocolate, naughty cake. You know, you just talk about eating delicious food, maybe going out to markets, farm shops, going to food events, you know, getting them involved and enjoying food and seeing food as something that is joyful rather than something that's menial and boring and day to day. So make things exciting, make them fun, talk about food in a really positive way. Great tips. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom, Lucinda. It's been fantastic. Where can people find more information about you and and the work that you do? So our website is naturedoc.com. We also have an online shop which stocks lots of lovely supplements and that's naturedoc.shop. And then my most active social media is nature.kids on 
Instagram. But you can find me on, you know, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, even TikTok. So there we go. Fantastic. We'll, we'll pop some details in the show notes. Well, thank you again for coming on. It's been wonderful, Michelle. Thank you so much. It's been a really fun chat and I hope it's been helpful to your audience. It really has. Thank you. Well, that's all we've got time for today. Thanks for listening and a big thank you to Lucinda for sharing her wealth of knowledge and experience with us. You can find all the information discussed today and more about Lucinda in the show notes on the CNN website at www.cnnpodcast.com. And if you're interested in learning more about children's nutrition, healthy cooking or family health, check out CNN's range of mini and short courses and diploma training on the CNN website at www.naturopathy-uk.com under courses. And we also have a series of open events coming up and you can find all the information under the events section. Thanks so much for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, make sure you subscribe through your favorite podcatcher so you don't miss any future episodes. While you're there, we'd love it if you could leave us a rating or review as this helps us when creating new content.